I'm Terrence McNally, and welcome to Free Forum, A World That Just Might Work. I'm going to be speaking today with Sam Daly-Harris, founder of the anti-poverty lobby Results, as well as Civic Courage. And we're going to be talking about the new 2024 edition of his book, Reclaiming Our Democracy, Every Citizen's Guide to Transformational Advocacy. And to learn more, you can go to Civic Courage. That's one word, civiccourage.org, or Reclaiming Our Democracy. Again, one word, reclaimingourdemocracy.com. On Freeform, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at politics, economics, environment, science, health, culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better and I want to find out how. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, all one word, TerrenceMcNally.net. Allow me to take you behind the scenes as to how today's conversation came together. Last Friday, I was trying to schedule another episode or two to record before the end of the year so that I would have a couple in the can before things shut down for the holidays and something ready to go at the start of January. But people hadn't gotten back to me, or if they had, they couldn't do it till after the new year. And I remember I got up and took a walk, and, and I was frustrated. Uh, but it's funny how things work out. On Saturday, I got an email from Paul Loeb. Paul has been a guest a couple of times. He wrote a wonderful book called The Impossible Will Take a While, and he had founded and led an organization for a number of years, CEEP, the Campus Selection Engagement Project, which worked on education and activation of students on campus to vote. That group has since changed its name to Civic Influencers, and Paul left it after a number of years and has started a new nonprofit called Guides.Vote, guides like policy guides, guides guides.vote, to produce and distribute similar nonpartisan election guides. But in this email, Paul wasn't pitching his own organization. He was recommending a book by a friend and ally in citizen engagement, Sam Daly-Harris. Well, Sam's book, Reclaiming Democracy, which originally came out in 1993, would be available in early January in a completely revised and updated edition for 2024, And I think when you say for 2024, you're at least implicitly referring to the upcoming election, the stakes, the consequences for democracy, and so on. I was immediately excited about the book and the potential guest because, as any regular listener knows, making democracy work and giving people positive ways to take action in their lives is at the core of this show. Well, Paul mentioned some things that showed that Sam had a track record of building engagement for the common good. He'd started an organization called Results, encouraging and empowering people to become advocates and letter writers. This all sounded familiar. In the late 70s, early 80s, I was a young actor, and I lived with five other folks, two couples and another single guy, in a big house in West Los Angeles. I remember we had a pretty nice view and a hot tub and all of that. And One of these couples had folks meet in our living room. It was once a week, maybe once a month, to write letters advocating to reduce and ultimately end hunger. Had they been working with results? I emailed Sam to schedule an episode, and he got back to me with dates within 10 minutes. See, contrast that with my frustrating time the day before. But during that 10 minutes, I went online and found an article he'd written entitled The Start of an Experiment. And it opened with these words. In October 1979, I moved to Los Angeles. I was off to get rich as a songwriter so I could have more time to speak to high school students about my passion, world hunger. And it included photos of Sam Harris 44 years ago sitting in one of those letter-writing groups. So I sent another email choosing a date and telling him where I had lived at that time and that I suspected that some very early results meetings had taken place in my living room. Sam emailed back the name of one of my long-ago roommates. So let me just say it turns out that today's episode 
has been a long time in the making. Almost everyone shies away from advocacy as a way to make a difference. And I suspect that listeners sign petitions, make donations. Many may even be active in organizations working on issues they care about. But I'll bet few take the next step to meet with a member of Congress or write a letter to the editor. Why? Well, Sam believes it's because most of us see advocacy as too hard, too frustrating, too complicated, too partisan, too dirty, too time-consuming, or too ineffective. But Sam asks, what if that's all wrong? What if deep engagement dissolves discouragement and can actually bring joy? What if you can become an advocate and feel fulfilled instead of frustrated? And what if engaging as an advocate is essential to protecting our democracy? On the book's initial publication, Jimmy Carter wrote, many of the world's problems, including poverty, poor health, and ignorance are correctable. In Reclaiming Our Democracy, Sam Harris shows how to take action to eliminate these problems, and he provides a roadmap for global involvement in planning a better future. Daily Harris's message, stop being hopeless, get with a group that offers a rich structure of support, something that coaches you, empowers you, emboldens you, and educates you. And of the 2024 edition Sam has written, I want this book to be a beacon of hope and possibility for people who feel brokenhearted and overwhelmed by the headlines they read. I intend this book to be a roadmap for individuals and organizations that want to make a difference on the issues that are precious to them. And I want this book to be a wake-up call, a clear challenge to the very large, well-funded national nonprofit organizations that I believe, these are Sam words, are guilty of anemic advocacy that disempowers the average citizen. After starting with a career in music, Sam Daly-Harris founded the Anti-Poverty Lobby Results in 1980, co-founded the Microcredit Summit Campaign in 1995 with Nobel Peace Prize winner Muhammad Yunus, founded Civic Courage in 2012, and coached Citizens Climate Lobby during its first seven years. His book, Reclaiming Our Democracy, has just come out, as I've said, in a completely revised and updated edition for 2024. Welcome, Sam Daly-Harris, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. It's wonderful to be with you. Great. And let me tell listeners, we are recording this conversation on Friday, December 15th. I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas we talk about. So can you tell us, in your own words, how you see your path to the life you've led and the work you do? And feel free to go way back. You can mention childhood inspirations, mentors, turning points, moments of decision. Well, great. So let, let me just describe why what I'm about to do is important. Uh, I'm about to do what uh, was developed by Harvard professor Marshall Gans. He calls a story of self, which is essentially what happened in your life and what decisions did you make that got you to this commitment or said another way, why do you do what you do? And the point that I want to make before I tell mine, and I tell it regularly, um, is that uh, I really, one thing that's in the book is it's important to, for staff and volunteers in an organization to know and share their story of self. And let me cut in for one second, yes. just because I am smiling. I run an archive show every other week on Progressive Voices, so it alternates new show, archive show. The show that is running last, that I ran last week, was my interview with Marshall Gans from 2012 about public narrative. <laughs> Amazing. Yes. Okay, great. So, um, uh, uh, so here's the, the story. In fact, I'm just so people know, today is a Friday, and in the morning I I had coffee with a professor at Princeton University where I live and I told my story of self. And in the early afternoon, I, I had a call with the co-head of MWEG, Mormon Women for Ethical Government. And I shared my story of self. So it's, this is not a once in a while <laughs> thing, but here's how my story goes. Uh, I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in music 
and I played percussion instruments in the Miami Philharmonic Orchestra in Florida for 12 years and taught high school music. And 43 years ago, I founded the Anti-Poverty Lobby Results. And a lot of times people ask, music, poverty, what's the connection there? And when I look back in my life, there's certain experiences that start pointing me in a different direction. I graduated from high school in 1964, and I played timpani in the orchestra at graduation. And just before the ceremony, a flute player came back to the percussion section and told me that a high school fraternity brother of mine, a year younger, had died the day before in a tractor-trailer accident in Georgia. It was her next-door neighbor, so she knew about it before I did. I always say I was 17. When I was 17, mortality was an irrelevant concept. But during the funeral and the mourning period and after the funeral, I went with my friend's younger brother to pick up his report card from the homeroom teacher. It began to dawn on me that maybe I had 17 more minutes or months or years. And the questions of purpose came up. Why am I here? What am I here to do? What's my purpose? Four years later, 1968, college graduation, U.S. Senator Robert Kennedy was assassinated right in the days around college graduation. And again, it's what is this life? What is, what is this death? Why am I here? What am I here to do? What's my purpose? No answers, but the questions are getting clearer. Nine years later, 1977, I'm invited to a presentation on ending world hunger put on by the Hunger Project. And I go to this thing thinking, well, hunger's inevitable. What do I know? I'm a musician. I mean, I'm thinking it's inevitable in my mind because there are no solutions. Because if there were solutions, somebody mm -hmm. would have done something by now. But I go to this thing and it's obvious right away there's no mystery to growing food, clean water, basic health, literacy. I'm not hopeless about the perceived lack of solutions. I'm hopeless about human nature. People will just never get around to doing the things that can be done. But there's one human nature I have some control over, my own, and my questions, why am I here? What am I here to, to do? So I get involved in, in a big way. And this is the end of the story. In 1978 and 1979, I spoke to 7,000 high school students on ending world hunger, classroom by classroom by classroom. And just before I went into the first classroom, I read some quotes from the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, Food and Nutrition Study, and others calling for the political will to end hunger. So I asked 7,000 high school students What's the name of your member of Congress? I don't want to know if you wrote him. I don't want to know if you met him. Just the name. Out of 7,000 students asked, I, I would usually ask people, what do you think? Out of 7,000 students asked, 200 could answer correctly, fewer than 3%. 6,800 could not tell me the name of their member of Congress, over 97%. And results grew out of this gap between the calls for the political will to end hunger on the one hand and the lack of basic information on who represented us in Washington on the other. And so that is really my story of self, my what happened in your life and what decisions did you make that got you to this commitment. Okay, the, the thing that one of the things that struck me was I would have been less surprised if this had happened right as you got out of college. Do you know what I mean? Or something right. like that. But you actually were in this other life, this yep. normal Sam Harris life, yep. for 12 years. And yep. then, and then, what was it that triggered your move at that point? Because those uh, deaths that triggered the big questions were many years earlier. Right. I, you know, I, I just, I think I was just slowly and quietly 
paying attention. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't riveted exactly. I wasn't, you know, on fire exactly. I was just, you know, listening in a way. And so, yes, the first death in 64 and the next in 68, uh, I remember um, the D Democratic Convention in, uh, in 1968, they played a 20 or 30 minute film on the life of uh, Robert Kennedy. And my father was in the same room. We weren't a particularly emotional family. And I remember sobbing through that film. I think Guggenheim was the producer, director of the film about the life of Robert Kennedy. And so it was, it was profound, that particular moment. But I was still, you know, uh, uh, well, 68, I was finishing college, about to start as a teacher, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't drop everything. Mm -hmm. I just kind of paid attention and kept going with the way I was going. Now, let me ask one other thing, because about that, that transition for you. One of the things you talk about is people who care and vote, and then as we, as we, as I've mentioned, and as we may talk about, you know, give a donation here and there, sign a petition here and there, um, but actually feel hopeless about real change. Does that describe you at that point? Well, sure, I think so. You know, I, I think um, it wasn't until that hunger project presentation where they talked about the power of an idea's time coming, the power of creating, well, in this case, the end of hunger as an idea has, whose time had come, until I was like working with those kinds of ideas and concepts. Yeah, I think I was quite normal in terms of yeah. a, 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 a hopelessness. Let me add this thing, and there might be a through line through this conversation. I've spent a massive amount of time in the year before the book is published in 2024, a massive amount of time in 2023, frankly, reading columns and papers and listening to radio interviews and responding to those columns or articles or interviews. It's, it's something I train people to do in terms of writing a letter to the, to the editor. You look for an article or editorial that's an opening for the idea you want to talk about in your letter to the editor, and then you write the editor. Well, I haven't do, done that part. I've written the columnist or the producer of the radio show, etc. And with that in mind, one of the columns that I read was in Salon, in which the writer quoted a professor at the University of Pennsylvania as saying, you know, it really it's hard to make a difference other than voting. Even a professor of political science has a tough time making a difference other than voting. Well, if a freaking yes. professor of political science thinks voting's our only option, is, is it any wonder that all of us think something similar? And so, uh, yeah, I, I was as normal back then as it is right now to think that voting may be our only option in terms of uh, having our voice heard and making a difference. And I certainly might have thought that back then, and I don't think that anymore. Right. We, we're going to get in next, uh, Sam, to talking about some of the uh, uh, success of results. But before, I, I wanted to piggyback on what you just said, um, which is that in the activist handbook section of your book, you write, in 2018, 79% of grassroots advocacy professionals told the Congressional Management Foundation that a form email, we all see them, we all forward them, sign them, you know, whatever, a form email is their primary grassroots advocacy tactic. And in response, only 3% of congressional staffers told that same CMF that a forum email has a lot of influence on their office's decision. You have called this disconnect advocacy, advocacy malpractice. How do you explain this gap between what most groups do and what's actually effective? 
Well, okay, so one of the ideas in the book, uh, let's say um, you wanted to start uh, an organization, an advocacy organization on gun safety and ending gun violence or on climate change or on you name it kind of thing. One of the big ideas in the book is the main reason you or I will fail uh, to do big things is our fear of making big asks of volunteers. So uh, I, I think that my answer to your question is that it is rampant, the fear of making big asks of volunteers. Let me give you an example. Sure. I don't mean sell your house and give the money to our organization or, <laughs> right. or quit your job and, and work here, volunteer full or time. put us in your will, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I mean is, for example, if uh, if we're in a room right now, and let's say there are 20 people in the room and we want to start this chapter in whatever town we're in, one of the big asks is we're going to start with a four-part new group training. Every week for four weeks, maybe every other week for eight weeks, we're going to start with a four-part new group training. Well, that's a big ask. And mm -hmm. if I'm a normal staff members standing in front of 20 people, it's kind of normal for me to think nobody's going to agree mm -hmm. to a four-part new group training every week for the next. That's asking too much. And it's the pulling back. The fear of making big asks has organizations start with that fear and then construct their methodology, construct their offering on top of that fear mm -hmm. of making big ass. So I, as this organization, will ask you to do a tiny thing. And as a result, you might do a tiny thing and get a very tiny result and, you know, go away sometime soon. So my answer to your question is this fear of making big asks. So is it hard for me to ask my 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 or 1 million volunteers to sign this online petition? No, that's not hard. If, you know, if half of the people say no, I don't know about it much unless I check the stats or whatever. So really, um, you know, it's, just, it's like a fish in water, this fear of making big asks of volunteers. You know, it's, it's so obvious that it's not obvious in some ways. And so we get tiny methodologies and tiny asks and very often tiny results. And uh, we get the answer to your question, why? Yeah. So many groups, you know, 79% of grassroots advocacy professionals said online petitions were basically what they, they do mostly. And 3% of staff in Congress said that's really effective. <laughs> I know. So. What well, one thing is that every time I, I mean, I sign them and I, I click on them and I, I, you know, I do that. But as I'm doing it, I think this isn't really what they want. They, they, this couldn't be what they really want. They really want me to do this so they can take me to the donation page. Okay. Which yep. may or may not be true, but yep. in any case, you yep. know, it's, yep. it's, it's clear that's all they're asking. Now, yep. one of yep. the thoughts I have is that. I'm, I'm thinking of the enormous bestseller over the last few years, Atomic Habits by uh, James Clear. Are you familiar with the book or not? I'm, I'm not. Okay. So it, it's, it's – I mean in the publishing world, people must be going, oh my god. It has been in the top ten for like two years in a row, right? And what it's about is that if you want to change habits in your life, start small. Do something that you can actually do and then build from there. And so the notion of asking something small to begin with, I think there's there's efficacy there. But it's the fact that they don't build. I, I've consulted to nonprofits on communications. And one of my recommendations has always been what I called activation. You meet people wherever they are, you give them some some role to play, and you keep, where, depending on where they are, you keep inviting them and pushing them along the path. I think it's something that you, uh, it's similar to what you talk about, which we'll talk about a little later, called the champion scale, which is in moving Congress people or newspaper editors along that line. But 
it, it, the problem is not that the ask the initial ask is small it's that there's no build right well let me change that just a little bit thanks what i want to say is the problem is that there's no structure of support ah in other words I can make, I don't know, online some small ask and maybe it's going to be, but you, you didn't really agree to anything. So, uh, there's no structure of support that I'm offering you to say yes to, to raise your hand and say I'm in. So let me, let me, I'm going to skip ahead for just a second. Sure, sure. Because my whole thing is, well, uh, is this whole distinction between transactional advocacy, sign the petition, transaction complete, done. Right. And transformational advocacy, and I'm gonna tell you what inspired this uh, in a moment, which is where transformational advocacy is where volunteers are trained, encouraged, and then succeed at doing things as advocates they never thought they could do, like meet with a member of Congress and bring them on board or meet with an editorial page editor and have them agree to write an editorial. They, they do these kinds of things. And as a result, they see themselves in a new light. They see themselves as community leaders. And in a sense, a transformation has uh, taken place. And where I got this concept from was um, Johns Hopkins professor Hari Han refers to it as transactional mobilizing and transformational organizing. And she, mm. those words mobilizing and organizing, I thought stress more what the staff does more. So I've changed the, the phraseology that she inspired me with to transformational advocacy, which is what the volunteer does and transactional advocacy. And um, the question that I ask is, in the book is, well, how do I find an organization that's committed to transformational advocacy? Whether, whether, they, know it, whether they know it or call it that or not. Right, well, I mean, the thing is, I say Results was doing that for 40 years, I just didn't have a name for right. it. Right. And it was Hari Han that inspired the, my clarity on what we were already doing. So let me give you my, my three points for finding an organization that delivers transformational advocacy. Point one, enrollment and community building. In other words, if the organization is constantly bringing new people in and forming them into chapters, I don't mean online, they've got 5,000 new members today or they've got 2,000 new members online. No, no, no. I'm talking about bringing new people in and forming them into chapters. So you're not doing this alone. So you don't feel so lonely in your activism. So that's the enrollment part of number one. And the building community part of number one is they have a monthly all of organization webinar with guest speakers and the like. So it's not like just for the leaders, if they have 50 chapters, they have 50 leaders on. No, if they have 50 chapters with 10 people in each chapter, they have whatever the, they have 500 on their monthly. So they're building community in that way. So that's number one, uh, enrollment and building community. Number two, you wanna look for an organization that offers training mm -hmm. so that you become more effective how to meet with the member of Congress, what an agenda for the meeting is, how you practice that agenda, uh, how you write a letter to the editor, how you write an op-ed. So number two is training for effectiveness. And number three uh, is encouraging breakthroughs, uh, helping people move out of their comfort zone. Uh, there's this great drawing in the book where there's a little circle that's labeled your comfort zone and then next to it is a much larger circle labeled where the magic happens. <laughs> and you really want to encourage volunteers out of their comfort zone over to where the magic happens. And the, so the piece that I wanted to say that was missing is the structure of support. So again, uh, off to this mythical room with 20 people in the room, I'm inviting them to join this chapter which will start with a four-part new group training 
And then there'll be two meetings a month, a monthly webinar with guest speakers where everyone will gather, usually on because of our time zones in the United States, usually on a weekend day like a Saturday, so people can not only join in the East and West Coast, but stay afterward for their local chapter meeting kind of thing. So I, I want to raise this issue of not just starting with a small ask and mo moving to a larger one and a larger one, but starting with a structure of support where these asks can be made. And let me give you, I'm going to give you one more ex sure. example. And I'll, I'll be quiet. Um, <laughs> I give this example in chapter one where I was training a chapter leader, basically the Seattle chapter for a group, uh, the Foundation for Climate Restoration. And it was going to be their own first ever um, uh, uh, webinar because they had just started their chapters. And it was February of 2022. And this uh, chapter I, uh, leader, I said, uh, he said, you know, we have met with four uh, state senators and representatives in these last couple of months. They were only two or three months old. And one of the, the state representatives that we met with is chair of the Committee on Energy and Environment. And he asked us to brief the staff of the committee of their work is climate restoration, basically removing the legacy carbon that's already in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. He said the, the state representative who chaired the committee, he knew a lot about climate change, but he'd barely heard of climate restoration and carbon removal. And I said, well, wait, wait a minute. Have you ever met with an elected official before these four? He said, no, no, this was the first time. I said, well, wait, had you ever written to an elected official before? He said, no, I'd never written. I'd never called. I'd never met. I said, put that in your talk. If you don't let people know you'd never done this before, they'll think, oh, he's an expert. He could do this. We're not experts. Mm. We could never do this. And so where I'm going with this is, so he was in the structure of support that started with a four-part new group training that had trained his group how to have get a meeting, how to plan a meeting, how to have a meeting. And they'd had four already in their first few months you know, and so because of their structure of support, which was this training for action, you could say it was a small action. I don't think a meeting with an, a state representative in his case is a small action or, at all. I think a lot of people would be terrified. Right. What do yeah. I say? What if they ask questions I can't answer? Right. They, that would be out of many people's comfort zone. Exactly. Exactly. And yet... You know, that for whatever reason, they had the training, encouragement, and then they succeeded at having four of them in just a matter of two or three months. And, you know, again, I would say we're beginning to see themselves yes. in a new light. Yes. A, 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 an example of early transformational advocacy. You know, I, I, I'm finding a quote that I, I, I found in one of your articles Um when you were describing the early days of results and you said a couple of things that you said, we were fortunate that no one came up to us and said, creating the political will to end hunger, that's important, here's $50,000. And you also said, I realized, and this speaks to that you know, comfort zone thing and so on, I realized I had the right job to make a difference, substitute teacher. I had the right training to make a difference, music. I had the right bank account to make a difference, nearly zero. And I realized that making a difference wasn't a function of any of these. It was a function of commitment and persistence. Um, before you respond to those two quotes of your own, let me tell people. This is Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking with Sam Daly Harris, founder of the Anti-Poverty Lobby Results, as well as Civic Courage. And he's just published a new 2024 edition of his book, Reclaiming Our Democracy, Every Citizen's Guide to Transformational Advocacy. And you can learn more at civiccourage.org. That's one word, civiccourage.org, or reclaimingourdemocracy.com to learn more about the book. And that's one word again, reclaimingourdemocracy.org. 
www.ghostbusters.com. So, so that n- notion of how a $50,000 grant would have, uh, would have ruined you. Well, basically what I say is, well, then I would have gotten on a plane from Los Angeles, <laughs> fly to D.C. and find out how everybody else did it and probably done it that way. But luckily, no one offered the money. And so we were stuck in Los Angeles with our question, how can we be effective in Congress from Los Angeles? And the second quote that you gave, I had the right bank account to make a difference, nearly zero, that whole thing. That was actually from 1982, Mm. which was when we were doing candidate forums. We had no paid staff back then. we were doing candidate forums in Los Angeles, and uh, I was uh, being interviewed. It's a longer story. I'll, I'll just shorten it uh, with a, a, a writer for the L.A. Times. And she said, did you try and get an editorial from the L.A. Times? I said, yes. He wouldn't return our calls, the editorial page editor. Uh, and she said, no, call Kay Mills, who was the only woman on the editorial board at that time. And I tell the story that I call Kay Mills from a payphone mm. at a junior high school in Hollywood, LeConte Junior High, when I was on a break. And I was on the phone with her and she said, well, we don't, it was a World Food Day candidate forum. She said, we don't usually do editorials on days. Let's pick an issue and do one. And I promised to send her materials uh, on some legislation we'd been working on. And that, and I said, when that first editorial appeared, I, re, I used to make 100 photocopies of an important right. article. But I remember thinking, not only has the L.A. Times written this editorial, they've made one million copies of it <laughs> and they've delivered it for us, too. How marvelous my early morning dash to the front yard to pick up the L.A. Times was my run to democracy. Yeah. yeah. And, and, okay, we don't run to the front yard much anymore. We just go online to our online newspaper. And, you know, it's not a million delivered anymore. It's online, whatever. But, um, yeah, that was my, that was a really key early experience of transformational advocacy. In other words, yeah, and what you're saying, just to remind people again, that the, the distinction of transformational advocacy is one that doesn't just transform or may not even transform what you're working on, but it transforms your sense of yourself. Exactly. And if let me go to what we've worked on, and I'll, I want to give people just a little sense of it. Yes. Results started lobbying in 1984 on what was then called child survival it's more referenced as maternal and child health these days. And UNICEF, the UN Children's Fund, was reporting that 40,000 children around the world were dying every day, under five, from largely preventable malnutrition and disease, like measles coupled with malnutrition or dehydration brought on by drinking dirty water or mixing infant formula with dirty water or whatever. and uh, Results is lobbied every year, 84, 85, every year, 97, every year, 2003, 2004, (laughs) on these issues. And the latest report from UNICEF is that the 40,000 child deaths a day has dropped to 13,800 a day. It's still scandalously high, but that's a 66% decline. And in 1986, Results volunteers generated 90 editorials, not letters to the editor, but they enrolled the newspaper in writing editorial on tripling the child survival fund back then. And the end of the campaign, we would send five editorials, then four editorials, or then maybe five editorials at a time to leaders around the US, in Congress, in the UN, at the administration. And the last batch, The head of UNICEF, Jim Grant, sent a handwritten note in which he said, I thank you in my mind at least weekly Mm. for what you and your colleagues are accomplishing, but I thought I should do it at least once this year uh, in writing. And 27 years later, the former deputy executive director 
of UNICEF said a similar thing. There's no doubt that the work of results, you know, has been responsible for this dramatic rise in funding on child survival, and that's led many other countries to come on board. So, you know, the whole notion that one could have been involved in an advocacy effort that played a key advocacy role, we didn't vaccinate any kids, but we lobbied and got billions of dollars over 40 years for childhood vaccinations, for example, around the world, you know, and, and, and the child death rate from just vaccine preventable diseases have plummeted from 3.5 million a year to 750,000 a year. Wow. Still scandalously high, but it's like, you know, in this nothing makes a difference, it's all screwed up and going to hell in a handbasket world. Uh-uh, there's some things that are happening and people played, volunteers played a key role, not the only role, but a key role as advocates. That's something that, that people don't, don't really know enough and, and let in enough. Um, I, re I really agree. Let me ask, here's, here's something that I hadn't thought about until just like I was walking into the studio, right? And I thought, here is an organization, uh, results or civic courage, you know, uh, but, but results, let's talk about, that has empowered people and transformed their role and had, I mean, what you just talked about is in, you know, as you say, it didn't erase the problem, but, but sig truly significant um, change. And yet most people don't know about this organization and I only peripherally knew about it. In other words, right. as I said, when Paul sent me that email, I went, Sam Harris, results. That rings a bell. Yeah, exactly. Why do you think that is? And what's, is, is there need for more people to know? And obviously we're doing this radio show, this book is coming out, but you, you get what I'm saying on the yeah. scale of the problem is the scale of people's realization that you know, a, 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 a phone call away, a something away is an organization they could become part of that could transform problems and yeah. their feeling yeah. of power. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let me tell one other quick story sure. about uh, these articles I've been watching. One of the things that we were, I was watching in 2023 were two different segments of 60 Minutes on CBS. Right. Where the hosts, one was Scott Pelley, um, uh, and the host was saying to the guests, you know, there's no political will to do what you're talking about, don't you? And both of these segments use that specific, oh. and it said it in a kind of hopeless way, like there's no political will to do what you're talking about, and there's not likely to be. Yeah, it's like they were talking about gravity or this. something, right? <laughs> yeah, and so for me, that's a little part of the answer to your question, why don't we know about this kind of progress or why don't we know about this kind of organization, in this case results, uh, you know, it's, it's a world that's not that focused on what's possible and not that focused on what's been achieved. It's a bit, a bit more focused, um, you know, on um, what's broken down and what's not working and, uh, you know, what's failing. Kind yeah, of well, as you, I mean, one of the articles you pointed me to actually uh, in, in preparation for this by Jennifer Rubin was that the media have a bias for gloom and doom, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, negativity in news, this is Rubin's words, is a product of a human tendency to be more attentive to negative news content and then my thought is a more attentive audience is more profitable and more negative news coverage feeds yep. cynicism, resignation, yep. anger. Yep. Um, and, and, and so what I guess we've been saying what people can do in the face of all that negative news. But you were you were pointing to that uh, preference for an addiction to negative news as one reason that a. A group of individuals making a real difference uh, isn't well known. 
And also, that's also why I urge people to look for an organization that's up for delivering transformational advocacy, that's forming people into chapters. So when you're inundated with this negative news, you can uh, have some camaraderie in, in moving forward. Let me share uh, the yeah. headline for another. There was another column in The Atlantic. The column title was um, uh, Find a Form of Activism That Won't Make You Miserable. Right. Anyway, and and the, the author was basically saying plant trees, mm. work in a soup kitchen, don't do political act activism or political advocacy. That'll just make you miserable. Now, I'm not saying not to plant trees and right. not to work right. in a soup kitchen, but don't cut off those other possibilities because, yeah, if you don't find a good group, it might make you miserable. And B, if you find the right group, you know, it can light you up, actually. Yeah, um, I, I just want to say that what what we heard in the voices of those 60 Minutes people, the probably the most watched news program there is, right? And what it seems to me goes without saying or repeated as, as if it's just gospel is a sense like that. In other words, money in politics, uh, Citizens United, those sorts of things, terrible. We've got to work against them. We've got to change that system. But that doesn't mean that people can't make a difference. Let let me ask you right now, so that we don't, uh, so, so often I end up in the last minute going, so what organizations are good to join? So what are some, you've said, okay. you want sure. to find an organization that wants to dissolve yeah. your powerlessness, that is willing to train you, that's committed to moving you out of your comfort zone. What are some of those organizations? Sure, let me give you a few. So of course, Results, uh, which works on global and domestic poverty, results.org. Another is Citizens Climate Lobby. I'd love to tell a little story about sure. that in a moment. Uh, so citizensclimatelobby.org. If you go to civiccourage.org, I can help point you to some of these organizations. And of course, their focus is climate. Another group is the Quaker Lobby, FCNL, Friends Committee on National Legislation, and FCNL uh, works on peace issues largely, uh, others things too. But all of these groups form the chapters. Another group that I've worked with and coach, Catholic Relief Services, mm -hmm. their focus is a bit more on global poverty and also some climate work. Um, and the, the Foundation for Climate Restoration, which is more focused on carbon removal uh, and removing the legacy carbon that's in the atmosphere. Uh, so those are examples. Oh, one other that I know you have mentioned, and I I only bring it up because we I was just talking about Citizens United is American Promise. Do they fit yes. that? Yes, absolutely. That's an, another one. Another gr great group that I've done some uh, pro bono trainings for, like on letters to the editor, uh, is Rank the Vote, which is a coalition of twenty plus ranked choice voting mm -hmm. organiza organizations in 20 plus states that are trying to get uh, us moving toward uh, ranked uh, choice voting. Yeah, and anyone who's listened to the show on any sort of regular basis knows that we've talked about those sorts of problems and issues right. a lot. The fact that yeah. we have uh, too much money in politics, but then we also have winner-take-all systems mm. that really disempower mm -hmm. um, and 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 and. Uh, disempower citizens and over empower the two parties so that uh you know people in the media a lot uh if you're talking about political action it's just what's going on with the republicans what's going on with the democrats and it's exactly. not what's going on and with it's the a citizens. little lazy if you know you can just yeah. do that without not doing without doing much homework you can just take the latest thing yep, that yep. Trump said or the yep, latest yep. thing, whatever. And then it's a little lazy. Let me see if I can also cover this uh, champion scale. Oh, please. Yes. A lot of times someone will say to me, oh, well, my member of Congress is a Neanderthal. There's no reason to meet with them. They're so backward. And Or they'll say, oh, my member of Congress is so good on this, these issues. There's no reason to meet right, with them. Right. Nobody's meeting with them. So I really encourage groups to focus on a champion scale and move those who are opposed up to neutral and those who are neutral up to supporters. And don't stop there. Move supporters up to being advocates, 
advocates up to being leaders and leaders up to being champions. And if my member of Congress or your member of Congress is opposed, I have those groups um, ask these three questions. Mm -hmm. Question one, we know you don't support this bill. What would it take to change your mind? And take that as a homework assignment. If they said, well, if you got the Chamber of Commerce on board, I think I might support. Well, get the Chamber of we know you don't support this bill. What would it take to change your mind? Question number two, could you say more about that? Question number three, why do you think that is? These are all listening questions, a deep listening exercise. And it's a way to help move a member of Congress who's opposed and understand what would it take to move someone who's opposed up to neutral maybe, and maybe someday a supporter. Another thing I would urge groups to do, it's in the book, is go on their website and look for, through their uh, news releases, what is something they're excited that they've done that you're actually excited about? It can't be something you hate. Right. Some, and write a letter to the editor thanking them for their leadership on X and hoping they'll bring that leadership to your to your issue kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and if I could do, I don't know if we have time to do one yeah. more. Yeah. If someone's a supporter, there's this uh, American Promise Group in New Jersey. Yes. It's also in the book. They were uh, meeting with the deputy chief of staff for this member of Congress who was already a co-sponsor of their bill. And they said, would the congressman do a town hall meeting on the bill? He's already co-sponsored, but doing the town hall meeting would require him to be up to speed on the bill and talk about the bill. A week later, the deputy chief of staff says he'll do the town hall meeting and he'll give you a private 15 minutes before the town hall meeting. On the 15 minute, they say, thank you so much for doing this town hall meeting. Would you write an op-ed that we would get published on Constitution Day? On They keep asking him to do advocate actions. And so 15 minutes later, he spoke, he said yes to the op-ed. 15 minutes later, he did an hour conversation with 65 constituents and other New Jerseyans on the bill. And then a few months later, you know, his op-ed was published in one of the big papers in the state. Keep asking him to not just co-sponsor and take a nap, but co-sponsor and speak to people about it. Co-sponsor and have his op-ed published about it. So that's an example. Oh, and of I'm sure I'm not the only one that recognizes the the similarity here, that what what works for volunteers and advocates, uh, which is take it a step further, move out of your comfort zone, take on just a little more, is in some sense the same thing we're asking of uh, the editorial writers and the uh, representatives. Exactly, exactly. And exactly. my guess is, and I was looking for the quote you had, but I will just paraphrase it, that you we've already said that going out of your comfort zone and taking on something you didn't think you could will change your sense of yourself. My guess is that the same thing is true of the public official yes. who goes well, out of and their and comfort zone. Especially on this issue. Yeah. They'll, they'll feel more confident. Yeah. And Absolutely. then you, the other thing you said, and this I think would sh would surprise people, is that representatives or their staffs have shared that they actually pay more attention to the uh, the words of a citizen than net, or they might at least than the, the words of a citizen, an unknown, a regular person, than they are to the folks who are always sending them stuff. Yeah. I th I think that's true. Um, uh, the pros, yeah. or yeah. you know, the, the the lobbyists and all yes. of that. Oh, right. Yeah. Of of course. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we've talked about the champions. We've talked about transformational. Um, what's what's up for uh, you in the next uh, in this this next year? Uh, beside you've you 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 spent twenty three really looking at how the media talked about. Uh, advocacy and uh, involvement and engagement, all sorts of things. You finished a new edition of the book, which comes out <laughs> uh, this month. Um, 
What's up for you this month, this year? Well, basically, it's kind of like I've said, look, there's this body of work. There are these volunteers in these different organizations doing these amazing things. I want to spend, once the book's out in 2024, time really getting the word out. I want it to stop being the best kept secret. Mm. And so, you know, I, I, I've been uh, working with the, these media. My batting average is about two, 250, mm -hmm. which is okay yeah. uh, in the major leagues almost. Um, and, you know, about 300 journalists didn't write me back. And about 112 asked for a copy, an advanced copy of the book. And, you know, I'll be doing some interviews. Uh, it's interesting. When the book first came out in 1993, 94, I did an 85-city speaking tour. And, um, and I probably did seven local NPR interviews on that 85-city book tour. Now I've got interviews scheduled on 1A, which got probably right, goes right. to 300 stations. There's another show, Think, out of uh, Dallas. I'll be flying to Dallas. It goes to about 160 cities kind of thing. I'm getting a little smarter in my yeah, old age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the difference between your 100 photocopies in the LA Times, exactly. right? Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Leverage. So, so let me you ask know, you, I, really I, want... I want to go to the last thing, which is just before we finish, for people who want to, who are responding to this and want to get involved, what's the, 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 the what should they be doing in 2024? Well, number one, I, I think that the book is really empowering, reclaimingourdemocracy.com. Uh, but number two, finding an organization. Now, it might be that you want to work for a candidate. Brilliant. It might be that you want to work at a polling place. Brilliant. It might be that you want to do voter registration. Brilliant. But the thing I really want people to get is elections are critically important, but so too is the time between elections. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to do that, Find an organization that will feed you power, that delivers transformational advocacy. And if you go to civiccourage.org, uh, I can connect you with some of those groups that I've been talking about. You might be pushing your own group that you work with to be a, a bit more effective That's right. in this right. front, too. That's another way to go about it, right? Exactly. Is to take this, this, this manual and transform your own organization exactly. so you are so the next time i talk with sam we're talking about your organization exactly <laughs> and then can if folks wanted to hold a book talk just yes. get in touch with civiccourage.org yes yeah, so they could actually email me at sam at civiccourage.org if you wanted to do a zoom book talk in your living room or in your community just email me at sam at civiccourage.org and we can certainly set something up. Wonderful. Okay. The book is Reclaiming Our Democracy, Every Citizen's Guide to Transformational Advocacy. The websites are civiccourage.org, civic, courage, one word, or reclaimingourdemocracy.com to uh, access the book. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E, M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, all one word, terrencemcnally.net, or a world that just might work.com. They're the same website. If you want to receive my weekly email telling you who's going to be on what we're going to talk about and links to probably 10 or 15 articles to flesh out the conversation, um, email me at T-E-McNally, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, at Mac. Dot com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Freeform podcast on Apple Podcasts and most of the major podcast sites. You'll find years of podcasts on those sites and at my site. Uh, archives include Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, George Packer, and so on. You can also follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Kiana Williams in Productions, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all, you. My listeners, please share this podcast widely. And finally, thank you, Sam Daly-Harris. Keep up your good work. Yes, it's been an honor. Thank you. Oh.